Radio Drone. It's another lovely Bradless episode of Radio Drome. I, of course, am Josh Hadley, the person you all listen to this show for. I can't even keep that up. All right, we have a special guest, Mike Robinson, a.k.a. Mr. X. Hey, Mike. Hey, how you doing out there? And, of course, Alex, not his real name, Jowski. The real name is Swade. Oh, the Marquis de Swade. Sorry, I forgot. Well, hey then, Marquis de Swade. You want to do the Adam and Eve promo since you're so Swade? Go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME, and you get 50% off the first item, free shipping in the United States, three free DVDs, and a free mystery gift. And you know the real sad part of that, Mike? He did that a lot smoother than I usually do. That's kind of sickening, huh? Eh, well, hey, what can you say? (laughs) (laughs) Since people might not be familiar with you, Mike, since this is your first appearance here, before we actually get into the topic, tell people a little bit about who Mr. X is. Ah, well, Mr. X is just uh, my nom de interneto that I use to crack wise and basically have an excuse to say why I think so many things suck and why things should be better. And you bring a unique perspective to it by both the fact that you're you're even older than I am, and that shocks people that I'm as old as I am. Eh, what'd you say, Sonny? Speak up. And you're also black. <gasps> oh my god. I know, so I, I find it a little relieving when I hear you making black jokes on your show. Yeah. Well, somebody needs to. I don't come across as racist that way. <laughs> you mean less so? <laughs> yes, less so, yes. Anyone that listens to Live New Geeks knows we can get pretty racist sometimes. We can get humanist. I think we hate humanity equally. I agree with yes. that. I'll give you that, yeah. So tonight I'd like to talk about selling a movie, selling a video game, and the, the ethics therein. And by that, what I mean is both selling as in the trailer... The poster, maybe deceptive advertising, plus the behind-the-scenes journalistic nonsense that goes on between publications, whether they be website or magazine, and the films, the studios, the stars, etc. Do you think that it's it's ethical to, let's just stick with movie advertising right now, to edit a trailer in such a way that it completely betrays what the actual movie is about? that it makes you think you're going into a different movie than you are? Personally, I think it's completely unethical, but I'm a realist and I understand that that's been done since the dawn of time, and it's just to be accepted. Well, the film trailers do give you a false idea. They're meant to give you the idea that the movie's better than it's going to be, and a lot of people have accepted that. But the ones I don't forgive are the ones like Paranormal Activity 3, where the entire trailer was stuff that's not in the movie. Well, I was going to go into that later, but since you brought it up, There are two reasons that that normally happens. Mike brought up he's a realist, and I understand the real-world reason that that kind of thing happens. For instance, Alien 3, not the original teaser that said, you know, this time it's on Earth because they didn't even have a script at that point. What I'm more referring to is the original trailer that had footage in it. Half of that trailer is only on the special edition DVD because they cut the trailer so early they did not have a final cut of the movie locked into place yet, and it just happened half the trailer was scenes that got cut. I don't consider that so much unethical as unplanned. You should have planned a little bit more ahead with your trailer. Then you've got other ones. Mike, do you remember the original Highlander Endgame trailer? Actually, yes, I do. Do you remember? And you know exactly where I'm going right here, don't you? Mm-hmm. For those that don't know, the original Highlander Endgame trailer had all these scenes of magical powers. It, it had it had Connor splitting the villain 
Bruce Payne into two people. It had Bruce Payne stopping a sword with his hand in midair. It had Connor McCloud's face inside a crystal screaming. It, it had Connor and Duncan jumping through a time portal. It had an, uh, a sniper on top of a building picking off immortals. None of that is in the film, and it was never intended to be. The producer outright says they shot those scenes to make the trailer more exciting. That, to me, is unethical. Yes, that is unethical. You want to make the trailer more exciting, then you just use creative editing for the scenes that are in the movie. You don't just outright lie to people. Mike, what did you think when you saw Highlander Endgame, after you saw all those really awesome scenes, and none of them were in the film? Well, of course, the biggest thing I take back from that movie is, you know, Bruce Payne's homoerotic come on to uh, to Connor. Saying, don't, don't you, you want, want to be, be inside, inside me? me? But yeah. even beyond that, sometimes you can almost smell it from a trailer that this is something that's not going to be in the movie. Because I got the almost exact same vibe from the Spider-Man teaser trailer. The one with the Twin Towers? Yeah. Although I will say, since that was self-contained... It was less duplicitous, in my opinion. But when they straight up jam-packed, specially shot footage just for the trailer with the impression that it's going to be in the movie, to me, that's flat-out false advertising. And see, like, like with the Spider-Man trailer, I, I, took a, I took it differently than you did. I took that as, like, the original Strange Days trailer, the one where it's got Lenny going, Have you ever jacked in? Have you ever wire-tripped? No? A virgin brain. Well, we're going to start you off right. This isn't like TV only better. This is life. Yeah, that's a piece of somebody's life. Pure and uncut. Straight from the cerebral cortex. You're there. You're doing it. Seeing it. Hearing it. Hearing it. You're feeling it. It's about the stuff that you can't have, right? Like running into a liquor store with a 357 Magnum in your hand, feeling the adrenaline pumping through your veins. I can make it happen. I can get you anything you want. You just have to talk to me. Talk to me. Talk to me. Talk to me. I'm your priest. I'm your shrink. I'm your main connection to the switchboard of souls. I'm the magic man. The Santa Claus of the subconscious. You say it. You even think it. You can have it. Are we beginning to see the possibilities here? Clearly, to me, footage that was shot specifically for the trailer, but they didn't give you the impression in the Strange Days one that it was ever supposed to be part of the movie. It seemed like, hey, I'm a trailer and I'm trying to sell this movie to you. I got that same vibe off Spider-Man, that I kind of went, this doesn't look like footage that was ever actually meant to take place in the film. I can totally understand that part, as far as the Spider-Man trailer. Have you seen any others that have done that, where it's clearly footage of like maybe say the narrator talking to the audience didn't the original private parts trailer have howard stern straight out talking to the audience that's not in the film i think it did but in all honesty that one's a little misty i think that was just the presentation of the trailer rather than misleading about the movie right it was literally just howard stern saying hey come see my movie right so i don't consider that so much deceptive as like the highlander endgame thing or the other one that I consider very, very deceptive. Say you've got two big actors. Just I'm going to throw out a hypothetical. You've got Steven Seagal, Steven Seagal and Jean-Claude Van Damme in the same film, which would just be awesome, by the way. Let's say you have, you have them in the same film. 
Now, in the actual film, the two characters never meet. They're basically in an A and B plot line that never intersect. But the trailer edits it so it makes it looks, look like Seagal and Van Damme are fighting or like pointing a gun at each other or something. Do you consider that deceptive or just really good editing in sort of a sleight of hand way rather than a pickpocket way? Uh, that's sleight of hand, because if it's two shots that are in the movie just conveniently placed together, that's creative. Yeah, I have to go with that one, too. If you can make that work, it works great, because I recall the trailer for Star Trek Two. Star you Trek can... Into Darkness or Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan? Wrath of Khan. Specifically, you get the impression that there's going to be a confrontation between Khan and Kirk, and technically there is, but a lot of people who aren't hardcore nerds often forget those two are never in the same room, in the same shot together for that whole movie. So I would put that one up totally under sleight of hand, and I wouldn't feel that that one is so much of a cheat. I feel the cheat is more like when you edit a trailer like for Sucker Punch and trick me into thinking that it's going to be good. Yeah, yeah, Sucker Punch, well, I could kind of tell with Sucker Punch, as soon as I saw the trailer, almost as soon as I saw the poster, I just went, I think this is supposed to be a fanboy wet dream, but I think it's more of a rape nightmare. <laughs> And you turned out to be correct, sir. Yeah, Sucker Punch, but aptly titled, it was a Sucker Punch to its audience. So, fair enough in that. Now, what about something like what Roger Corman used to do in the 70s in his exploitation drive-in days? Such as, you guys are familiar with the movie Cockfighter, right? All gay jokes aside. Yes, I believe this has been discussed before. Corman didn't understand when he made the movie that while cockfighting is a big deal down south, it's kind of looked at like having sex within your own bloodline. It might be a big deal, but it's not something Southern people are proud of, which he didn't realize when he made the film as sort of a celebration of cockfighting. When the film bombed, he retitled the movie, had the trailer recut to look like a different film, and, and re-released the exact same movie, and people went and paid to see it again because they thought it was a new film. Is that sleight of hand, or is that unethical? Oh, that's Roger Corman. I mean, his middle name was unethical. It's what the guy did. He was a hustler, plain and simple. But he was a charming hustler with the way he went about it. Totally unethical, and you were probably pretty pissed off when you dropped your 50 cents at the drive-in. But knowing Corman movies, you probably still got your money's worth in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, it's unethical, but that's what people expected from Corman. I mean, that's who he was. Well, look at look at how much we've talked about on this show with rip-off exploitation, specifically the Italian variety, and how many alternate titles. I mean, hell, look, whenever Brad does a cinema snob review of an Italian movie, how he's got to go, oh, and it's also called this and this and this and this and this. Is that unethical to call something like, I don't even remember what the original movie was, but Evil Dead 4, remember that on video? Uh, yeah. That Japanese movie that has nothing whatsoever to do with Evil Dead or... Or Terminator, Bruno Matai's Terminator 2? I don't think I'm out on a limb to say that it, there's no borderline there. That's just unethical, isn't it? That was the Italians. Yeah, it was unethical, but it was a different set of ethics. I mean, they didn't have the same kind of copyright law we did over here. Totally unethical, but quite frankly, if you were a fan of those genres, it's just part and parcel of what comes with it. I always like to look at those kind of movies as taking advantage of the dilettante in the video store who's like, oh, there's a new Evil Dead out that I didn't hear about at all, yet magically it's already on video. Let me rent this. Like the <laughs> Asylum movies. 
yeah, we, we've discussed before the asylum stuff, how transmorphers and alien versus hunter legitimately fooled people who were very angry when they thought, hey, that new movie that just opened three days ago is already on video. Oh, you mean I got taken? I think at that point, when it comes to the asylum, I don't, I mean, there's, there's no doubt that it's kind of unethical, but it's also buyer beware. Yeah, that's pure caveat emptor on that one. Yeah, that, you're stupid to think that movie that just opened is already out on video, yet the poster's just not quite right, you know? <laughs> Something about that poster is just wrong. You're looking at that but, transmorpher and you don't see any dangling uh, genitalia. It's obviously not the Michael Babers. It's obviously less homoerotic, too. And if it's the second film, less racist. <laughs> and they do they do try to make the posters look pretty similar. If you'll notice, the Asylum ones, they don't have actors' faces on them. Well, th- okay, that's the other thing. How about how about posters that really misrepresent a movie? Especially, or not even so much posters, but the DVD covers nowadays. Say an actor was not famous at all when they originally made a movie. I- I'm thinking... Tom Hanks in Mazes and Monsters. There you go. Tom Hanks in Mazes and Monsters. That cover is not representative even close to what what the movie was. But I'm thinking more something like like Cutting Class with Brad Pitt. When he made that movie, he was a nobody. I don't even think he'd done Freddy's Nightmares yet. So Brad Pitt was nobody when he made that. And yes, to be fair, he is in a lot of Cutting Class. The post, the, the DVD, makes you think, this is a Brad Pitt movie, and that is all it is. Is that unethical, or again, caveat emptor? For me, that one, it's again, a, it's an unethical thing, but at the same time, if it's something that should be big enough to be in the public consciousness that you'd be aware of it, you really have no one but yourself to blame if you fall for that sort of thing. If it's Brad Pitt, and he's already big enough that all his old films are being recycled and repackaged for a quick book, you probably would have heard about this movie coming out at some point or heard about his co-stars or heard some gossip about how he was acting up on the set. So if you just happen to stumble across the new Brad Pitt movie, you might want to at least flip it over and see if there's more than one copyright date on that box. Fair yeah, and you get that uh, with a lot of like the Mill Creek collections or those big collections of mostly public domain movies that sell themselves based on the actors. And all of them, it's like actors' first movies or lesser movies, but they're like, hey, it's a collection of 50 movies with actors like Dennis Hopper. X-ray technician in a single scene kind of thing. Yeah, I always love when they do that. Or the one that I, I really love, like the movie in America called Nuclear Run, which is the George Miller's follow-up to Mad Max. Now, it was made after Mad Max, but before Mad Max had come out. So Mel Gibson was not a star yet. Mel Gibson has a tiny cameo, maybe 40 seconds in the movie, and he's got a big beard, and he's completely unrecognizable with a thick Aussie accent. So what happens on the videotape? Starring Mel Gibson in Nuclear Run. And you go, um, no. Like I said, he's got a cameo. Unethical or, again, caveat emptor? Totally unethical. And... It's still happening to this day. I, I recall there's a Steven Seagal vampire movie that's got him on the cover, and I think he's in it for a total of like nine minutes. I think there's a new 50 Cent directed DVD movie that's got Bruce Willis on the cover. I think he's in it for 10 minutes. If you look at a box and something seems off about how they're promoting the big star that's in it, that's usually one of your warning signs that maybe you're about to get took. 
Well, Alex, I believe you have something to say about Against the Dark? Oh, yeah. The, well, not only is he, Steven Seagal only in about half of that movie, but they stretch the um, the ratio on the film to make him look thinner. <laughs> they squish it together to ma- stretch his face all out to make him look thin, and he was an executive producer on it, apparently. He actually helped get it made. So okay. he had a he had a say in the fact that he's only you know doesn't even get many close ups. He's mostly shot in shadows or long angles to where you really can't tell the fact that he's really out of shape. I and heard Mike, they've been doing if, that a lot lately. Yeah, Mike, if you haven't seen the movie yet, it's funny how he loses about sixty pounds whenever there's a flip or an action scene that comes up. Yeah, the last couple of Seagal movies I've at least tried to watch, it's become painfully obvious that unless it's a shot that he really feels like doing, he doesn't do the shots anymore. <laughs> yeah, we did a whole Steven Seagal episode, so I don't want to concentrate on Seagal, <laughs> but yeah, but there's yeah. that. Well, then l- let's move away from that and move into film journalism. Now, one of the, the big, big cases that came up was, Mike, I know you remember the magazine, Cinema Fastique, remember that? Or Cinema Fantastique? Yeah, Cinema Fantastique. Well, they they got into a big problem. Now, they were not a corporate magazine. Cinema... Fa- Cinema... <laughs> d- CFQ. CFQ. <laughs> CFQ was privately owned, and they were ad-free. So they had a higher cover price than other magazines at the time, but it was all content. You had no advertising whatsoever. To offset that, they they would get... They would get exclusive set visits, interviews with the big actors, big directors, things of that. And and after a while, the studio started to notice, you know, every time we invite, invite a CFQ reporter onto the set, we get a negative review. Well, we thought there was a quid pro quo going on here, that we give you exclusive access to the star that the other magazines like Starlog do not get. We kind of expect a good review. So CFQ stopped getting invited to the movie premieres and that they even got blocked from some movie premieres that it was, no, we have specifically been told you do not get to see the movie as critics. You have to go buy a ticket because they were being too honest in their reviews and in their journalism of breaking stories, you know, like maybe an actor's getting all out of hand on the set and whatnot, and they would be the first ones to break that. Whereas Starlog would basically suck their cock to get the exclusives. To me, that's there's no question that's unethical. Do you think that's still happening today with the websites and that should CFQ have been punished for doing their job properly and not taking kickbacks? No, they shouldn't have. And, you know, I completely appreciate their honesty presenting, okay, this movie does suck, you know, because there's so many people that will just brown-nose a studio or are just getting paid off by a studio to give a positive review to full people into seeing the movie. Good job, CFQ, for telling it like it is, even though it didn't work out for you in the end. Yeah, it kind of broke them at the end. They, they You'll notice CFQ went under. But, but that's why, for the most part, I actually appreciate more independent blogs and whatnot for reviews of movies, because they're not getting paid by anybody. They don't care if the movie sucks or not. They'll say what they want. Mike, you, you remember one, you, you being actually older than me, you remember when all that CFQ nonsense was going on and how they were basically blacklisted from from the science fiction horror fantasy community yet they were one of the biggest ma- names out there oh i definitely remember that and in this particular case it was also a bit of a double-edged sword because frederick c clark or 
whatever his name was, who ran the magazine, turned out to be a bit of a dick who didn't pay most of his staff. But at the same time, it was the only place you could write with that kind of freedom. So, yeah, I know I know I remember reading articles about Spielberg specifically saying, no, they are not to come to my premieres. Joe Dante was another Joe Dante got pissed because they (laughs) loved it. Dante, for the most part, yeah, it, it might have been inner space. It might actually have been inner space that Dante got, but, but Joe Dante got pissed off at one point at them and specifically said, "If you're from CFQ, I'm not talking to you." Which is hilarious because they're basically the the precursors to today's net reviewers and journalists. It was basically fans who felt if we don't criticize this stuff, you're not going to get better. You're just going to keep shoveling out the same crap to us, and we're just going to have to accept it. Just because we're fans doesn't mean we're going to tolerate everything. And that's what that magazine kind of did. And then one of the writers from that, Mark A. Aldman, went off to do Sci-Fi Universe, and he got into the same problem with Star Trek because he would re- he would do a whole bunch of exhaustive interviews with the cast and crews, and then he'd write reviews, and they felt that that was not fair because some of his reviews were just vicious. Early Star Trek? Next Generation, and even as much as I love DS9, Season 1 had a lot of clunkers. Oh, I agree. Again, I go back to what you said. They were being honest critics. They weren't just sucking the teat. Unlike people that, and everyone knows that this Jabba the Hutt motherfucker pisses me off, Harry Knowles, who has made no bones about the fact that his reviews are for sale, yet somehow his reviews still carry weight with people. I don't understand that. Do you, Mike? No, I don't. But we also live in a society where a fake reviewer was able to get away with this for a David about a Manning. Year. <laughs> so at this point, it's easy to assume almost anything is for sale. I totally want to go write a book of David Manning's reviews using the, the, the fake quotes from those movies. I want to write that that positive review for the animal that David Manning wrote. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thrill a minute fun ride for the whole family. For those that don't know, David Manning was a fake critic whose whose name and blurbs were splattered all over mostly Sony releases until they found out that David Manning doesn't actually exist. He was a made-up film critic. When they knew they had a bomb, they made up a quote from David Manning to put on their poster to make it look like it was a better movie or better reviewed than it was. So when he got caught, and obviously unethical, do you know? Do you realize that the people who created David Manning not only did not get punished for that, they got promoted and they started running Sony a year later? Because that's how <laughs> Hollywood works, right? Absolutely. Well, and it shouldn't they, surprise anybody. They did have. They did lose a class action suit where they paid out the um, like people. seven dollars a piece. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it like, a, oh, it was a screw you. We can afford this payout. Yeah. They said that uh, the animal was another winner. <laughs> which is wrong on so many levels. Exactly. <laughs> well, then you've got, like I brought up Harry Knowles. It's it's funny how after he gets invited to a set or has a cameo in a movie, his opinion of that film changes. Quality of the film irregardless. Now, obviously, everyone is going to have a different opinion. Somebody, I'm sure, actually liked Godzilla 1998. It's what's kind of funny is like Harry Knowles, he hated the movie, you know, and all the the trailers and everything. He was all against it. He was invited to an exclusive set visit. Then all of a sudden, this is the best film ever. And it gets a glowing, glowing review from him. 
after an all-expense-paid trip where he got to hang out with the directors and Matthew Broderick and the stars, and he outright sold his review. And he's done that time and again. Like, he's he's close personal friends with John Carpenter. Funny how, no matter how bad of a John Carpenter movie comes out, it gets an absolutely glowing, this is John Carpenter at his genius best review. Well, let's be honest. Look at Harry Knowles. I don't want to. And and think of his history. Think of him without a shirt. Shut up, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) But this is a guy who probably, more likely than not, didn't have that many friends, probably wasn't that popular, probably didn't have his opinion taken seriously, and probably got picked on a lot. Again, think of him without a shirt. <laughs> well, it, it, even come, it even comes down to past associations. Drew McWeeny, who used to be Moriarty on the Ain't It Cool site, he's now a screenwriter. A terrible screenwriter, but he's a screenwriter who writes a lot of John Carpenter stuff. And he wrote both of the Masters of Horror episodes that John Carpenter made, both of which were pretty awful. And I mean, they're generally considered terrible episodes by any real critic. Harry Knowles, he's not only close friends with John Carpenter, but with Drew McWeeny. Funny how he considers them the best thing that Masters of Horrors ever put out. Do you think that you need to distance yourself professionally like like a judge would in a conflict of interest? Like, I've told Brad, both on the show and privately, I didn't really like Hooker with a Heart of Gold. I liked the snob movie. So does that mean I'm sucking up to him when I give the snob movie a good review? He knows I'm not just going to blindly go, well, you made it, that means it's good. That Yeah, that caveat you give is what makes the difference. If you admit your biases up front, then I'm willing to buy what you're going to say. But if you cloak and dagger it, and that's what so many of these people seem to do, then it feels duplicitous. What about moving from movies to video games that do the same thing? Such as the big... The only way I can call it is bait and switch that happened with Aliens Colonial Marines a couple of months ago. 90% of the of the trailer and all the promotional videos are nowhere whatsoever to be found in the game, and somehow the actual game looks worse than the demo people played a full year prior at E3. Is that just, they screwed their own product up so bad, or do you think they were straight out lying the entire time? I think they might have just made some mistakes and screwed it up. I don't think they were flat out lying completely. Actually, from what I've been hearing on the backstory on this one, this might have been a case of not so much a bait and switch as... Oops, we're going to take all our best resources and put it towards a bigger project, and we're just going to kind of toss this one to some guys who should be able to handle it. Because from what I heard, I guess Borderlands 2 was taking up all their time, so they third-partied Colonial Marines to somebody. To TimeGate, and TimeGate doesn't exactly have a stellar record, and Aliens Colonial Marines proves that they still don't have a stellar record. But unfortunately, when you have that much footage that's been seen and gotten people excited if you don't at least try to replicate it at least a little bit then yeah that feels like that you just didn't care to me there has to be more going on than that because like i said there was an almost 15 minute playable demo at e3 and then when the game comes out those same levels not only are less rendered but can't do half the things that you did in the demo that's over a year old 
Couldn't you literally have just ported the demo over to the game for that section? That leads me to believe that something else was going on back there. I don't know, but was any of I never played Alien Colonial Marines, and I barely paid attention to the reviews, so I don't know if it was really a bait-and-switch or not. All right, then Then how about the ethics of Mass Effect 3? You knew I was going to go there, Mike. You knew it. Oh. Well, they're not going to put the ending in the trailers. No, no, no. I'm not talking about that. I mean, they promised us. And now, I know fans are going to go, oh, you're just being butthurt right now. You know what? And I, I am because... My butt got hurt. They told us from game one back in 2004, all of the decisions you make in these three games will absolutely affect your 100% unique ending that no other person will get. And then you find out that not only is the ending rushed, it makes no sense, not a single decision you made since 2004 affected your ending other than what color of explosion you got. Those choices did affect your 100% unique gameplay experience That's for the whole series. That's not what was promised. <laughs> That's not what was promised. They lied to us. If, 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 if a company makes a promise and they plan on sticking to it, you, you should not have to apologize for feeling upset that they did not deliver on said promise particularly since you had to not only pay for it as a game you have to do all the work to get to the ending that you were originally promised and isn't there then there's also something like the 2007 game wet did either of you play wet that's basically like playing a grindhouse movie no i had heard about it but i never got a chance to play it I was going to make a pun about wet, but no, I've never played the video game. <laughs> okay, the game, it, it, it's pretty broken, but it's fun and it's got some good elements. You go and look at the game itself and the launch trailer, and the same thing happened that happened with Colonial Marines. Different company, though. Where you go, uh, how come absolutely nothing that they promise in the trailer is in the actual game, and the game is rendered worse than the playable demo that you had? Again, it makes you go, what happened? Did you just change direction? Or did you just put an extra million dollars into the trailer and go, make it look really good by the time anyone finds out the pre-orders are already in and we've made a profit? Maybe all these companies just keep hiring the same wacky intern who splashes Coke onto the mainframe you know, a week before launch and they have to cobble the code back together. Because otherwise, I don't understand how these problems keep happening. Well, somebody's reaching for some chicken fingers and spills honey mustard on the switchboard. That's I what knew happens. that was coming, Alex. I knew that. I knew you were going to go there. By the way, I thought mine was a little more subtle, but got the point across. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, you brought this up in pre-show. Video game journalism. Do you want to fill the audience in on the Cannon Lynch fiasco from GameSpot? Uh, what was it? Two thousand nine, two thousand eight, maybe. Somewhere around there. Yeah, GameSpot's website suddenly becomes Canaan Lynchified. All the all the graphics on the website get changed to Canaan Lynch. They just they're talking nothing about Canaan Lynch and Canaan Lynch and exclusive this and exclusive that. It's going to be the best game ever. They get the only pre-advanced review, I believe, because of their exclusive, and it's glowing about how much of a leap the game is and how much better it is and how amazing it's going to be, and you just can't wait to play it. Then the mainstream press gets their hands on it, and it's averaging fives. And because this was the internet, and GameSpot wasn't prepared for that, 
the backlash was huge. Their site, I think they had DDoS attacks. Their forms were spammed to the gills. It was like you have no artistic in- integrity. And then the company basically said they eventually leaked some information that said that if GameSpot did not give the glowing review, they wouldn't have gotten the exclusive or the advertising revenue to be promoted in the first place. They so. also had uh, part of their writing staff also quit over that. Once their writing staff found out that that they were basically required to give good reviews, not just to Cannon Lynch, but that was the one that the specific incident was, but any major advert, any game that had major advertising on GameSpot, they, they were nudged by editorial to at least give it an eight, and they were not allowed to talk about, quote, any kind of negative aspects of the game in the review. So the writing staff, surprisingly enough, having integrity, said, I can't work for this company. I'm not going to, I'm not going to write ad copy for BioWare. I'm not going to write ad copy for Ubisoft. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to criticize and critically look at the game. So you got to give them a little bit of props for their writing staff walking out, right, Mike? Oh, yeah. Well, with regards to the GameSpot controversy and the general nature of game reviews in general, that so many of them are paid off, I again, I don't pay attention to the mainstream media for that reason, except for the bad games. Because if they're giving a game a bad review, it must really be bad. Well, there's that. And there's also the fact that maybe I am jaded. Okay, there's no maybe about it. I am jaded. <laughs> but maybe I am I am too jaded in this regard. I don't put any kind of oomph behind any kind of critical review that I don't know the person. And I, and I know how weird that sounds, but like when Brad reviews a movie, I know ballpark what kind of things Brad and I like in common. So if, if Brad compares it to something that I really like, I trust Brad that he's probably not leading me in a bad direction. Whereas like with GameSpot, I've never, I, I didn't trust game reviews beforehand because my taste in games seems to be quite different than what the mainstream likes in games. So I don't think they can really speak to me in that review. That makes sense. The other thing I was going to bring up as far as video games go is like Game Informer and before that Nintendo Power. Those were publications owned by game companies. Their goal is to PlayStation get you to buy Mag- games. PlayStation Magazine, Xbox Magazine, yeah. Yeah, of course they're going to give great reviews because their goal is to sell games. They want to get you to go out there and buy the games. They're never going to give a negative review. Look at like some of the worst games ever made on the Nintendo, how glowingly Nintendo Power spoke of them. Oh yeah, absolutely. I and quite frankly, I'm pretty sure if you follow the money trails on a lot of the major game magazines today, that situation's probably still kind of existing in certain cases. I know in the film arena there was a lot of concern about Time Warner owning Entertainment Weekly when it became the number one entertainment magazine, so I'm sure there's gotta be an equivalent in the gaming world as well, where you're like, eh, I pretty much can't take what you're saying at face value. There's there's too many palms that need to be greased and too many masters that have to be served to really get an honest opinion when you're dealing with publications that that deal with that kind of money and have that kind of quote-unquote influence. Well, then, then let's take that to its nice logical step. What about something like, say, a fan magazine, like Walking Dead magazine? Say they need to sell their magazine. They need access to Norman Rebus and... and 
Michael Rooker and the stars and things like that. They need behind the scenes access. They need the producers to talk to them. They need someone, uh, you know, on the level on AMC's corporate board to send them the behind the scenes photos for their magazine. So, so they can get it before anybody else. Does that not automatically, whether they intend to do it or not, automatically cloud them towards being positive towards the show, even when they're as blithely stupid as the last few episodes of Walking Dead have been? Do you think it blinds them to criticism where they say, this this isn't about being critical, this is just about getting the information out there? At what point does it stop being a business and start being arguably journalism? You bring up the example of a fan magazine, which no, is run. No, but, but these, like, like Walking Dead magazine, Doctor Who magazine, these are not fan magazines in like a fanzine kind of way. These are fan magazines in the way that they're they're almost like they're almost like press kits. These are people yeah. that are working for. Yeah, I the feel company. that they are press kits, frankly. The magazines themselves are fan service. Their target audience are fans of the show. People that will argue with you that the last few episodes of The Walking Dead have been the best ever because they're fanboys. That's I don't who their target talk to audience. Those people because those episodes have been <laughs> terrible, using cinematic shorthand and characters being stupid. Okay, continue. Go ahead. Their target audience are fanboys, so they're going to speak to their target audience. They're not going to say, well, it kind of sucks because they'll just alienate their audience and sell no magazines. Have you ever looked at one of those tattoo magazines? I'm not big into tattoos, so no, I have not. But you've I've, seen them. You've seen them on the stands, right? They're, yeah. they're right. They're right underneath Hustler, and they're they're right over by by Pen. No, no, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> so if you open up one of those, basically, you're gonna get a bunch of hot chicks and tattoos with maybe a few pages about how they make the tattoos and profiles of the people who are the best tattoo artists. It's a fan magazine. It's a fan wank magazine. The Doctor Who magazine, that ridiculously, completely sold out Star Trek magazine, The Walking Dead magazine. They're all nothing but glorified press kits that might have maybe 10% critical analysis of what they're talking about. But basically, it's legal smut for the fanboy. Yeah, their goal was to get the fanboy to not just watch the show, but to buy all the merchandising with it as well. All right, then then let me change it up a little. How about something like really mainstream? Let's let's leave Entertainment Weekly out because they're not as genre specific. Let's look at something like Empire or Total Film from the UK, which both have big US audiences as well. They're all about we've got a slew of pics of the Hobbit, we've got a slew of pics of Iron Man three, blah blah blah. You know, they've always got whatever the big fanboy gasm is on the cover, and they got nine pages of photos and all this kind of bullshit. What about something like that where they say it is literally bad business to review these movies critically? Because like those magazines, when Dark Knight Rises came out, they had all these exclusive Dark Knight Rises things. You could kind of see anything negative about Dark Knight Rises was pushed way to the back of the magazine while all the positive stuff was in the front. Do you think that that's just them going, it's bad business to give honest opinions and in a magazine like that yes they are they are meant to be critical as well they're not fanboy magazines the same way as doctor who or walking dead is i feel on those kind of situations i think they pick and choose they're gonna probably be a little nicer for that exclusive they get for the avengers part two but if it's final destination six 
they're probably going to give them a little crap in the review and be a little more harsh and critical. I think you're putting it exactly right. They're running them like businesses, and in their mind, to alienate a movie that's going to do such amazing business that to have exclusive photos is going to sell more magazines, I'm sure their board of directors is like, well, screw what you feel about the movie. We're going to sell those magazines, so you be nice to that Christopher Nolan boy. This would also go back to the way the internet has changed movie reviews, because I've never actually read a print issue of Empire Total Film, but I follow their websites all the time. So when they have this stuff on the website, you also have the comments below it all that kind of level it out. So they'll give, they'll say what they want about The Avengers 2. What really sells me of if it's going to be a good movie or not are the comments. Do you think that a magazine... Or, or even a website should have an editorial direction? Or do you think each reviewer, each journalist should, should make their own decision? Cause I remember at one point when Chris Gore was still running Film Threat, I think it was for the Larry Flint version or it was right at the end of, of when he owned Film Threat. You would see them bashing the movie at the beginning of the magazine and then you'd see a, and then you'd see a glowing review at the end of the magazine and you kind of went two different bylines. So you'd go, clearly these are two different people, one that hated, say, Natural Born Killers, and one that loved it. Do you think that that was wise of Chris Gore to let that both in there? Or do you think he should have had an editorial direction that, okay, Film Threat is going to be pro this movie or negative this movie? I like that he had the two separate point of views. That kind of democratized a bit. And, but in a weird way, he got crap for that. He got crap for not having an editorial voice for film threat. He actually continued that in Sci-Fi Universe because there was a glowing review of Deep Space... Well, not glowing, but it was a positive review of Deep Space Nine. And the very first page of text was an editorial by Chris Gore trashing the show. Of course, it was second season. And, and see, I've always respected Chris Gore. I don't always agree with him, but I've always respected the man. And I think what he did with film threat did prove that because I, I got to agree with Alex. I think it was ballsy for him to not say the magazine is taking an editorial voice. The, this specific reviewer may have really hated Natural Born Killers. I, you know, I as Chris Gore really liked Natural Born Killers. Now, the funny thing is, when I was working on the website version of that, he kind of had the same kind of mandate. But the funny part was, you would kind of, if everybody agreed on one thing, but one person didn't, you just kind of made that a joke on the site itself. It's like, obviously we all have our own opinions, but yours is wrong and we're going to make fun of you. <laughs> it's like, that's only something I would do, Jesus. But do you think, do you think that, that kind of tight editorial control that Gore had on Film Threat moved over, and I don't mean filmthreat.com specifically, but to these websites and blogs, like, you know, you've got Dark Horizons that are breaking, you know, exclusive photos and news for, you know, Avengers 2, just for an example, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and they'll be all the ones breaking all this news up until the movie comes out. And then when the movie comes out, it's, oh, this is the worst piece of crap ever. And I don't know why anyone ever bothered with it. Do you think that's right? Or do you think that obviously having not seen the film, they're just all caught in the hype? Hype has a lot to do with it. And let's be honest, if you're a smaller website and you suddenly get your hands on an exclusive, you, you're going to you're gonna squee and be like, oh my goodness, I got this. I do like that some of the sites that I like to check out, like Film Drunk and Topless Robot, even when they do get exclusives, they kind of temper their enthusiasm by saying, 
well, the movie could turn out to be a po- total piece of crap, but hey, doesn't this look cool? And I like it when they kind of disclaimer it like that. I can understand getting caught up in the hype. Hell, I got caught up in the Sucker Punch hype, and I'm regretting it to this day. But I can totally understand how in a case in a case of running that kind of website, you can still have that ca- same kind of film threat vibe and even still kind of lose perspective a little bit. But at, at the end of the day, you're basically saying, I'm still going to give my honest opinion because that's what you come here for. Then I think that's as close as an editorial direction that you really need because internet journalism at this point is all, when you agree, pretty much 100% personality based at this point. It's Alex, like the only place you can really do that. What about when it comes down to perception? What about something like, let's just say Dark Horizons, that they bash the new Evil Dead, but there's Evil Dead is awesome banners all over that are paid for. Does that diminish the advertising? Does that diminish the review? Or does that strengthen the review that they're advertising with us, but the movie goddamn sucks? Oh, that's totally good of them. That that uh, strengthens their ethics, I'd say. That Yeah, they're paying us to advertise, and they're not paying us for a good word. I think uh, Penny Arcade does the same thing. They're like, you can advertise with us, but we might bash you, so be prepared for that. Did you think that it was kind of willful ignorance or arrogance on the fact of, like, uh, I don't remember what company put out, Kane and Lynch and, or whatnot, and you still do see this on these other websites, that if we advertise with you, it's kind of an implied consent thing that you're going to give us a good review. Do you think that's arrogance or they just really thought everyone was so duplicitous that that's just how things were going to work? Because I remember the Kane and Lynch, whatever the company was, I remember they were surprised when everyone was pissed about this. They were kind of like, really? You're mad that we were paying for a good review? We kind of assumed everybody knew that's how this worked. I will say on that one, yeah, I still believe that that's the, the, the underlying thinking that goes on with a lot of this stuff. Toss money at a problem, and the problem should go away. Think you're going to get a bad review, advertise on their site, and that'll probably shut them up. And I think it still surprises them that someone would actually bite the hand that feeds them, but I'm like, uh, that's kind of what traditionally uh, <laughs> rebellious talent has done for ages that reviews and journalism really even make a difference anymore? I mean, in the age of the internet where it's arguably democratized, do you think what Brad says about a movie, what I say about a movie, what you say about a movie really makes a difference to how the the people listening to this show, the people that are reading a website, that are reading a magazine, are going to go into a movie? Do you think that when we saw Siskel and Ebert give a good review to a movie, that automatically gave us a prejudice towards liking that movie? Or do you think it really didn't make a difference? That one's a bit of a toughie, because I also remember the print reviewers, like the, the Pauline Kales and the people like that who literally did have influence. And even back then, I remember reading like her reviews and sometimes saying, no, I disagree. I think it began when I read her Star Wars review. She hated it. And I was like, well... I'm sorry, but I disagree, you old bitty. Then I remember reading Harlan Ellison's evisceration of Star Trek The Motion Picture, and that was the first time I realized, okay, his backstory is coloring his review of this movie, so I can't take this fairly. And eventually I learned to realize, find people who say things that you like, 
and seem to like the kind of stuff you like. They're not going to like everything you like because that's impossible. But like when you find a bread or when you find if, it, if it's a, for you a Diamanda Hagen or a Nostalgia Critic or God help you if it's a Michael Medved. If you start to really kind of get a feel for what they're saying, I don't think it prejudices what your opinion's going to be, but it points you in the direction of maybe if there was a movie you were on the fence about, it might push you either over to seeing it or over to definitely not seeing it. I, at least that's the case for me. Well, lately for me, I haven't really trusted the mainstream press at all. The people I trust are basically the ones whom I trust that I've met across the internet, that I've seen a lot of their stuff, and they've got an honest opinion that I sometimes agree with them, sometimes don't, but they're honest. They'll tell you this movie is good for these reasons, bad for these reasons. They're not being paid off by anybody, so they're going to give an honest opinion of their thoughts on the movie. And so I've come to trust more people on the internet with a movie for the most part, there are some that are just catering to the movie's fan base. Well, then, then what about when it, when it comes down to when it comes to prejudicing you against or for a movie? Do you think all that, that pre-production hype, like, like Empire basically shooting their wad all over their own face over Avengers 2, Avengers 2, Avengers 2, leaving aside my Joss Whedon hatred, I'm just using that as an, a big budget example. Do you think them like drooling all over that? automatically kind of tells the fanboy in you this is probably something to drool all over or or do you think it's just you'll look at that and go hey guys they haven't even shot the damn thing yet can you wait until you actually see it before you start getting hard i will say that in my youth i used to get caught up in in the zeitgeist of it i'm now a cynical jaded old bastard so so that might come from, you know, having a lifetime of having to dig in the geek trenches back when just getting any information about a movie that you, a French movie that you were interested in was a challenge. But now that it's everywhere and all over the place, I, at least for me, I, the hype really doesn't work that much anymore. Uh, I'm going to pretty much have my own opinion regardless of what I see in advance. Well, like Mike as well, I used to get caught up in the hype for a movie back when I was younger. But nowadays, also, not quite cynical and jaded, just not as motivated anymore. Um, I'm not going to really see anything in the theaters, not given, not because of the movies themselves, but just I don't like the environment of a theater anymore. Oh, I can co-sign with you on that. Uh, that's a whole different episode. So let's not get <laughs> yeah. into that. We're, yeah, we should do that as a show one day. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a whole different one. That's like a live nude geeks, maybe. The movie, regardless of the hype, I'll... You know, I'll see a trailer, I'm like, well, if it looks good or it sucks, regardless, I'll probably watch it on Netflix or pick pick it up on DVD someday. So the hype really does nothing for me nowadays. Since we're running out of time, Alex, where can people find you? Geekjuicemedia.com And Mike, you are the newest contributor to Geek Juice Media in our incestuous little crossover here, aren't you? Yes, I am. And you can find me as well at geekjuicemedia.com and at mrxonline.com. And you can find me, 1201beyond.com. Contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And I'm going to say just don't believe the hype. Don't don't look at the unethical tactics that are out there, both in the journalism and in the trailers themselves. 
try to make your own decision and don't go, oh, everyone else likes this movie, so I think I'm supposed to as well. Also, conform. Conform. <laughs> Consume. Buy. Watch TV. Obey. Speak. <laughs>